welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answers. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. To grow this community of information and action, I hope you give us a five-star review. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show or download a free prescription for naloxone. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on attacking the supply chain of deadly illicit fentanyl. To learn more, visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illicit fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a border conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. Border, as in the border around the United States. The word border tends to have an edgy conversational tone. It's like bringing up charged political topics like abortion or the death penalty. So uh, let's dive right in. First of all, we all live in borders. We have property borders, whether we own or rent our homes. We have borders around work. At my hospital, with the rise of violence toward healthcare workers, the entrances of the hospital are limited and we have increased security. The hospital has strengthened its border. And even our ever-growing homeless population establishes many borders around where they live. So where is the American border? We focus a lot on the southwest border of the United States. That's where I live in San Diego. However, that area contributes to only 7% of our national border. We have a northern border, west and eastern border, as well as borders from the ocean, the air, and postal service. What about our border policies? It seems to me that some of our policies are off balance. Is it fair that we open hotels for immigrants while our homeless citizens remain in the street? My brother-in-law spent a lot of time and money on immigration lawyers trying to get his girlfriend from Thailand to come in on an extended visa and live with him in the United States, but he failed. He can go live with her for a time and be with her in Thailand, but she cannot come to America. That doesn't make sense to me as millions of people cross our border and live here bypassing the onerous legal bureaucracy. Can we blame people from impoverished lands from crossing our border, wanting to come here for a better future? I don't. I might do the same. In fact, I am a proud immigrant of the United States coming in at the age of two. But regardless, should our borders be completely wide open? Do open borders represent compassion to the people seeking opportunity or a danger to those same people and to American citizens? The people crossing have real physical risks, and Americans are exposed to a risk of allowing criminals, drug dealers, and terrorists into our country. The answer and solution is not in the extremes of the conversation. We need smart policies. To learn more about the border, I reach out to an expert who was in charge of our American border. Rodney Scott served three decades for the United States Border Patrol, serving as chief of the agency under the Trump and Biden administration. 
Now retired, Chief Scott works with congressional leaders, state legislators, civic groups, and media outlets to provide expertise in border security. He's now part of the Border 911 team that advocates for border security, especially relating to the pouring of fentanyl that infects our country. To learn more about Rodney Scott and Border 911, check out the High Truth show notes. Chief Rodney Scott, welcome to High Truths. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. I am very excited. And uh, Border Patrol, you served uh, for nearly 30 years. And tell our audience, what made you choose uh, that career? And uh, how did you? How did that work out for you? Pretty good. You ended up as chief. Yeah. By, <laughs> by most accounts, it worked out pretty well. So that could be the full hour. So I'll try to make it short. Um, Basically, I, I grew up a farm kid in Indiana, then moved to Arizona when I was in high school. That's where I got introduced to the Border Patrol. Um, I just thought it was kind of cool at first. It, it wasn't, I didn't necessarily look at it as a career. Um, but anyway, long story, I went to college to become a pilot, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, like a lot of different kids, you know, what, what motivates you, what doesn't. Well, I loved being outdoors. Um, I always loved having a purpose. I wanted to do something important. So I looked at the military, uh, looked at, you know, trying to fly for them as well. I found out the Border Patrol had a very unique pilot program where you had to come in and be an agent for three years on the ground first, and then you could apply to be a pilot afterwards. And I thought that was a really unique mix of the, everything I liked because I liked four-wheeling, I liked hiking in the mountains and all that kind of stuff. Um, Arizona at the time, the Border Patrol was all about counter-narcotics. You never heard anything really about illegal immigration. Um, so basically, it was kind of like, a, it just looked like a great job. Uh, so I applied, I ended up getting in, and they sent me to San Diego, and I found out that there was an immigration problem, because <laughs> that was in the 90s, and things were kind of chaotic there. But it was just a good mix of, you know, things that I enjoyed doing, you know, being outside, um, kind of being on your own, but also a job where you're giving back, um, and, and you're hopefully leaving the, the country and your community better than you found it. I was just kind of raised that, that you needed a purpose. That's really great. And and you became, you rose through the ranks and became chief. What does it mean to be chief of the United States Border Patrol? Um, yeah, first there's a saying in the Border Patrol, probably other organizations too, it's like no one was more surprised than I. Uh, I had no intention of, of promoting. I really enjoyed my job out in the field. But through a uh, series of, of uh, very interesting events, I ended up getting promoted a few times and then did make chief. Um, so chief of the United States Border Patrol is just like chief of any other police department. I think people think about, you know, the enforcement, the uniform aspect, but really you're the CEO of a very, very large company is probably a better way to look at it. So yes, the enforcement piece is important, but there's so many layers uh, of individuals that are actually doing that. You don't really get into the day in, day out enforcement stuff anymore, um, but that's a 20,000 person organization, everything from uh, dispatchers to mechanics, uh, the logistics of having leases for facilities and buying fuel and building border wall. And uh, you have just a million different aspects. So your day really is meeting to meeting to meeting. But the cool part about it was, and the reason that I ended up saying yes, is you're setting the tone for the whole organization and you're setting national policy uh, for the whole organization, um, of course, based on uh, the executive branch of the, the president's uh, guidance. Um, but that part of it uh, was probably the most rewarding aspects. The rest of it was like busy work, if you will. Um, 
but you're running a huge organization dealing with HR issues, human resources issues, and you know, buying thousands of vehicles and all that kind of stuff. Wow. And the primary goal of the Border Patrol is to make it safe to, um, is it drugs? Is it illegal immigrants or, or is there more? Well, thank you for bringing that up because I think the mission gets overly complicated a lot. And if anybody was watching the news today, um, depending on which channel you're on, you could see the Border Patrol's mission as being very different. I like to overly simplify things or just like break them down to the, to the basics. The Border Patrol's job is very simple. It's to make sure that no one enters our national home without going through the front door. It's that simple. The, we have 328 official ports of entry for this country where by law, whether you're a U.S. citizen or whether you're a foreign national, that's where you're supposed to come and leave from the country. Uh, Customs and Border Protection officers are there to meet and greet you, have conversations, enforce the law. But it's illegal to enter the country in between those ports of entry. And Border Patrol's job is not just narcotics. It's not just, you know, immigration. It's to make sure that we know as a country and we're making conscious decisions about who and what enters our home by making sure people come through the front door. Everything else that we see in the media that's topic specific, whether it's the war on drugs, whether it's immigration, that stuff's all secondary because Border Patrol can't even take action on any of that until they know what it is. And they actually have to be able to patrol the border, identify illegal crossings, and then be able to interdict them. Only then do they know what they're dealing with, if it's a narcotic smuggling, a terrorist, or, or just regular illegal immigration. Are you looking at the entry, knowing the entry of the front door, you said, of just people? Or is it also things, materials? I mean, it's, especially, it's people. Especially yeah, it's people and goods, and not just drugs. So it is drugs, but I'll give you a, a San Diego example. Years ago, we busted some, we, sorry, we interdicted some people smuggling in uh, potato chips. Some people are like, well, who cares? Well, you know how much money we put into the FDA in this country to make sure that food on the shelf is actually safe? Americans take it for granted. And basically, people are smuggling in, in between the ports of entry, uh, large shipments, a, a truckload uh, of these potato chips that were not cleared to come in. A lot of times, that's for tax evasion or whatever else. But product safety is a big deal that people forget about all the time. And we import products from overseas. They're supposed to go through certain processes. So it's everything. U.S. Border Patrol has customs law enforcement authority and immigration authority and then general arrest authority. Um, their job is to stop anything and everything that's coming across that border in between the ports of entry and then figure out which, uh, which laws apply to that specific situation. Right. So if it, it could be illegal drugs and it could be also, you're saying tax evasion, we want to just like. Yeah, correct. Or it could be anything else. We caught uh, some agents, I believe it was in Texas last year, caught people smuggling in a Bengal lion cub in violation of Endangered Species Acts. It's all, it's all the laws of the U.S., but the ones that get the most focus, of course, are immigration and narcotics because those are the ones that get the headlines and that's what the Border Patrol agents stumble across the most. Got it. So let's talk about the, the path of fentanyl and other drugs uh, into the United States. Uh, of course, fentanyl is a driver of, of deaths. It's the public health crisis of our times. But uh, tell us about how that's coming uh, into the United States. Sure. And we'll talk about fentanyl a little bit separate from the others, because I believe fentanyl is poisoning as opposed to most other narcotics problems we've had in the United States where people die, it's been an overdose. 
when people don't even know what they're ingesting and it's been masked as something else, to me, I believe that's poisoning and that's a whole nother level of nefarious act as opposed to just selling people something that they want. Um, but for the mo fentanyl is a man-made uh, product, if you will. The precursors primarily are being uh, shipped out of China. Originally, when we first started having a fentanyl issue, again, total transparency, we were getting a lot of what we call consignment shipments or direct mail. Uh, so products were being shipped into the United States. Uh, the fentanyl was being made here. But we really cracked down on that as a whole government approach and really took away that ability. Well, the cartels and China, they worked together and they created a new route where they're shipping mass shipments of these precursors into Mexico, setting up these super labs, and then the, the historical cartel paths into the United States, which they've, they've got it down to a science, um, that are smuggling the, their drugs, the fentanyl and everything else into the United States, right along with illegal aliens, right along with cocaine, uh, heroin, or anything else that they believe that they human can make money off of. Human every... smuggling, human trafficking. Nothing crosses our Southwest border uh, without being controlled by the cartels. So in the cartels, Think of it as a big diversified corporation. I mean, that's a bad way to look at it, but a criminal corporation. They have different arms that deal with different things. But at the end of the day, if it's crossing that southwest border, uh, it's with their, especially between the ports of entry, they're controlling it. So is the poor fentanyl, uh, it used to be what you're, what you're saying was direct fentanyl through the Postal Service into the United States. And uh, at the time, I remember President Trump going to China saying, you know, don't do this. And they listened. They didn't do that. But instead, they got, they did better. They, they just sent the precursors um, to Mexico, uh, sent, you know, people from China, teach them how to put it together and coming in um, through the southwest border. But is it also coming in through other ways? Is it coming in through um, our northern border and, uh, and other methods? Yeah, absolutely. But it comes down to percentages. Um, so the vast majority of fentanyl is coming across the southwest border, coming directly out of Mexico. Um, but it, you can pick the drug. You can even pick human trafficking and illegal immigration, regardless of the country, to include Mexico. Um, we have uh, illegal. We have Mexicans illegally entering the United States from Canada. They go to Canada on a visitor's visa. They come in. We have. We have uh, people from all over the world illegally entering the United States from Canada. We have drug smuggling coming from Canada. But the but it's a different situation because we have a very robust relationship with the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police up there. And we work together very well, share information. The vast majority of the illegal activity, though, the vast majority of illegal smuggling of people and narcotics, regardless of what it is, is coming across that southwest border because it's so wide open. And again, total transparency We've had challenges on the southwest border forever. I'm not going to sit here and say that this all started with the current administration, but we, over my 30-year career, were systematically gaining more and more control of the southwest border. Uh, San Diego is a perfect place to look at it. It was like a Petri dish, if you will, where we started experimenting with some different types of technology, different types of barriers way back in the 90s. And all of that is basically to come up with a cert with with a end result that allows an individual border patrol agent to cover more area so that we can actually prevent all this stuff from coming into the United States. It doesn't mean the cartel is immediately going to stop, but basically the vast majority is on the southwest border, so that's where we put a lot of our resources um, to try to mitigate that.
Right. Now, you said you wanted to take fentanyl separately than other drugs, methamphetamine, cocaine. Is the path to the United States different for that? No, the path is the same, but I think the end result is different. So, and I think we need to approach this very differently. Um, and again, this is based on all the briefings that I got, my experience as a Border Patrol agent and as the chief. Cocaine, heroin, um, marijuana, all the other traditional drugs, that the same path come through Mexico, uh, whether they started in Colombia or somewhere else, South America. The Mexican cartel facilitates the entry into the United States. The gangs that working directly with the cartels and or cartel factions in the U.S. distribute them all over the U.S. That's all the same. The big, big difference, though, is two things, in my opinion. That was always for money. It was for money and to get high. So you had the pull factor of Americans that wanted the drugs, and then you had the cartels that really wanted a ton of money. And that was really the only two factors. Everybody was a willing party. Two big things changed with fentanyl, in my opinion. One, the, the China influence and the fact that China is an enemy, whether we like it or not, and China is knowingly and intentionally, I believe, shipping these precursors into Mexico to fuel this epidemic and to kill Americans. And then it's, it's a poison once it gets here because a lot of times it's masked as something else. It's masked as a legitimate pharmaceutical, but that's just basically a placebo with fentanyl added to it to get the high. But the person taking the drug thinks that they're taking something that was prescribed to another individual. They think they're taking a legitimate drug uh, for that, that at some point in time came out of a pharmacy when that is not the case. To me, that fraud aspect and that bad intent from China results in murder. And that's why I say it should be taken differently. That's people, Americans are being poisoned uh, by fentanyl without ever willingly and knowingly taking that fentanyl. That's very different than any drug that we've dealt with in the past. Yeah. And, and I agree with you. If you're buying an Adderall uh, pill to study for finals and you die in the university library uh, because you thought it was Adderall, but uh, which you shouldn't have done, that's a mistake, but it, but it killed you, then I, I, I agree. That's murder. That's a poisoning. And that's why I talk about it in a different in a different context. I think we need to we need to acknowledge that, and we need to approach this threat differently than we have some of the more traditional right. narcotics threats. And yet, since it's such an important distinction, I don't see law enforcement and public health. Uh, I'm accountable to bringing that data. Right there, I don't see an effort when somebody dies to uh, to try to figure out what the intent was. And it's hard to figure out when, when you died. But like what a study that I've, I've proposed that we need to be doing is ask people after they overdose, what did you think you took? Um, and some people readily were seeking fentanyl, uh, but some people weren't. And we don't know. Uh, and at this point in the game, we should know that. Uh, and, 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 and we don't in order to, to make that differential. You bring up a good point. There's so many times, and I'm going to make a weird leap here, I apologize, but uh, that we could really have more information that would help us respond better on the border or before the actual damage takes place, whether it's illegal entry, whether it's somebody taking fentanyl. Um, and you just talked about the questioning of people that survived after they overdosed. For some reason, there's a hesitancy there in the non-governmental organizations, in the medical field, especially in the mental health fields, to work with law enforcement. When I was in San Diego as the chief, I was trying to work with some of the, uh, the government organizations that actually deal with human trafficking. 
and basically I didn't I didn't want them to turn and like give me sensitive information that was going to cause people to lock up and not share information. But my human trafficking taking place on the border is extremely difficult to interdict because in my again, based on my experience, most of the people being trafficked don't know yet. They literally have no idea. They think they paid a smuggler to take them into the United States and they're just a willing part of this process. They don't realize until they get to the other end that it's either slave labor or sex trafficking or something else. So a lot of the, the things you would pick up on aren't there. I tried to get some of the non-governmental organizations that have found these people in human trafficking situations to just basically find out where did they cross the border? Who, who did they talk to before they crossed the border? Because that would allow us to identify what we call plaza bosses. Every section of the border is, is controlled by a manager, if you will, but we use the term plaza boss for that. And some, some sec factions of the cartel, some plaza bosses are more willing or more likely to be tied with like human trafficking, as opposed to what you would consider traditional economic migrant smuggling or whatever. But we don't ever get any of the data back to figure out which one is which. We could do a so much better job in law enforcement um, if we actually had that end data, like it, like what you were saying, did they know it was fentanyl? Did they not? Um, how do you prosecute that? How do you educate people? But really, we do need better partnerships, more trust, if you will, between law enforcement and a lot of these non-governmental organizations that in, that deal with the end result as opposed to the front end, so that we can make people safer and fix the front end. Um, yeah. But that's a big challenge. I'm actually really proud of our relationships that we've had in San Diego and that partnership with public health and public safety. I don't know so much about the human uh, uh, trafficking end, but as far as drugs, uh, I chair a committee called Credo Community Response to Drug Overdose. And every month we meet with medical officers, uh, our high-intensity drug trafficking area, our sheriff department, um, our public health officers, our district attorney, our harm reduction specialists, everyone at the table at the table crossing silos saying, okay, what's going on with drugs? What are the trends? What can we do? How can we help each other? Um, and uh, so we're, I think we're really fortunate to, to have that relationship and that partnership. Well, it's something about San Diego. When I was the uh, deputy chief and the chief out there, we joked around all the time, there must be something in the water because we did have great relationships. And, and, uh, and I'd be remiss. The only reason I had the conversations with the, with the non-governmentals about the human trafficking is because I had a relationship with them. And we were trying to convince down to the street level, down to the, uh, the counselor level to, to get back some of that information and stuff. But it was a fantastic relationship we had there because I honestly believe everybody was trying to do what was right. And no one cared about the credit. They just wanted to actually leave a positive impact on the community. Right. That's kind and of we, that's and that's we unique. learn from each other. It's it's yeah. it's it's actually fun to interact with people with a different profession. Yeah, um, you learn a ton. Yeah, and the the other thing I think I, I'm proud of in San Diego is we investigate every fentanyl death with our team ten as if it was a potential murder and investigate. And parents of of of, of loved ones who've died are very grateful. And when I go around the country and I talk to parents, they express that, you know, nobody cared, nobody investigated. And they thought, oh, just somebody, another drug overdose. And and uh, law enforcement didn't take the time. And uh, I realize how much, how important that is. You know, families want to 
show that, that they cared, like somebody cared and did some type of investigation or looked into it, take, looked at the phone, you know, traced it, like what was there? What did they overdose on? You know, families want to know that and not just be dismissed, oh, another, another overdose. Every, every death is, is horrible. And you don't want to think that one is worse than the other. Um, and I'm not saying that they are, but, but I agree with you, especially in these specific situations, because society in general, you just, you tend to get numb and there are limited resources uh, that you can apply to any and every investigation. So whether we like it or not, when you see a group of known intentional voluntary drug users, Sometimes when you had to choose that or an actual something you thought was a murder scene that you know that, that you could you could solve that issue, it shifted. But this is so much different, like we were talking about before, that every one of these cases could potentially be a murder. One of my uh, colleagues with Border Nine One One, Derek Maltz, he talks all the time, and he, and he was DEA. He you know he's all about you know, narcotics enforcement, and you would think if there's anybody that get a little callous after a long time, it'd be a DEA agent. And he has the biggest heart because he's like, these kids, these people, they're not drug addicts. Many, many, many times it's that Adderall. And, and we're not trying to justify that that should or shouldn't happen. Um, but, you know, is society, you're just, especially cops are kind of skeptical when somebody comes and goes, oh, but not my kid. My kid would have never done that. But in the case of fentanyl, a lot of times that's true. And uh, I think they do deserve and, and we need to investigate these and, and figure out. Because again, somebody needs to be held accountable, especially when we know an entire nation state is fueling this attack on the United States. It's primarily coming across the Southwest border. We've found ways to address this issue. We found ways to mitigate uh, this threat. Um, but right now we're not using any of those powers that, that we have as a nation to hold China or Mexico accountable. The least we can do is give the families some closure. I, I agree with you. I agree that this is an attack. 300 deaths a day, that's unacceptable. It, it, it is, you know, it, it, it is, uh, you know, killing our population, our vulnerable population. Um, we should be a lot more outraged than we are. But I also say that when you talk about law enforcement officers, I don't see them anymore saying, not my kid. They, they're all like, that could be my kid. And I don't know if you know Officer uh, Jonathan Morales, um, first Border Patrol agent to win, I'm going to get the title wrong, but he got the you know, Officer of the Year out of all the law enforcement agencies. Um, he's out of El Centro. And uh, he's our local hero because he, uh, at the Chabad Apawi uh, shooting, uh, he uh, yes. went after the gunman. Um, yes. And he got, you know, wonderful awards. I think his picture is at the Custom and Border Patrol building in D.C., and a few years later, in the middle of COVID, his daughter uh, died, poisoned, tricked, killed, murdered um, from a Xanax uh, pill that was had no Xanax in it, and it was fentanyl. So it's uh, horrific. It can, it can, not can. It is currently touching every corner of our nation, uh, every aspect of society and culture, and and it is an attack. It's a very, very serious attack. And it has to be attacked. We have to attack that attack or do a counterattack, if you will. Multi-pronged, just like they are. And actually the awareness and trying to get kids to not take something they don't know what it is is important. I think that medical treatments, the prevention is important. But we know where this stuff is coming from. 
And I think slowing down that flow and stopping that flow, if we can, is also just as important. Yeah. Um, Upstream supply yeah. Yeah. and prevention, that's what will fix the problem. Um, so what what percentage, and this is maybe a critique of the Border Patrol, but what percentage of drugs are actually seized or um, uh, are stopped at, at the border by, by CBP? Yeah, so uh, I'm not going to answer that, and I'll just tell you why, though. I'll give you an answer, but not the one that you're looking for. It's speculation. So, by the way, but that was a performance metric that I was putting on my personnel when I was the chief in San Diego, when I was the chief in El Centro, and then ultimately the entire United States Border Patrol. Because to answer that question, you have to know what's crossing the border. Now, there's a million ways you can do that, but one way I looked at, just very, very rudimentary, uh, talk to local cops uh, in Chicago, New York, or anywhere else, and ask about the street price of narcotics. Because whether people want to admit it or not, supply and demand, basic economic principles apply everywhere. So the more we're interdicting, the more effective we are, it should be driving the price up. Unfortunately, we haven't seen a, a real big shift based on a specific operation or anything to affect that. But that doesn't mean you don't lose, that doesn't mean you lose hope. I, again, back up early in my career right there in San Diego, and unfortunately, Americans have a very, very short memory, right out by Otay Mesa, port of entry, broad daylight, almost every morning, we would get truckloads of, then it was marijuana and cocaine, driving across the border, getting into high-speed pursuits all over San Diego. Sometimes they'd crash, sometimes they would get away, but just total chaos. But they were driving truckloads of this stuff, the, the narcotic of the day across the border. We, under the Clinton administration, decided enough is enough, and we started building barriers in San Diego and experimenting with, with uh, t tools and techniques to figure out what's working and had prosecutions and consequences. And we were able to make San Diego, which was completely out of control in the 90s, the most secure land border in the United States. And then they started bringing some stuff on boats up the coast. You guys probably saw that again this week. They're, they're some stuff offloading in San Diego. But, but then we shifted resources up the coast. But my point is, it wasn't just San Diego. Over my 30-year career, we were doing that around, across the entire southwest border with the first objective being, we need to be able to, to tell America what's going on. If we lose it, we lose it. If we don't, we don't. But you, we need to answer the question you just asked. How much do we think is getting away? So Border Patrol, over the last two years, probably, you've heard publicly, and I'm going to get away from the narcotics for just a second, you've heard them start talking about known gotaways. So that was the first time we started Explain reporting. Explain what that it. means, a known gotaway. I don't know. So what a, a known gotaway means Border Patrol actually documented an illegal entry. It could be footprints. It could have been a camera, a sensor, um, some type of, ev of evidence. And there's, a, there's literally a, a standard operating procedure written that it has to meet certain criteria before you're allowed to document it as a, non -got as a known gotaway. But they have identified the illegal entry. But we, for whatever reason, and most of the time, it's a lack of resources or their resources are somewhere else. I'll get to that in a minute. We were unable to effectively interdict it. So we know it got into the United States. It crossed and it did not go back and it did not get caught. But my point is, we were getting such a level of situational awareness on the border because of technology, because of systematic patrols, getting more and more methodical about how we patrol the border that I was getting a report as chief every day about what crossed, 
what areas where what areas were we not patrolling so we literally have no idea what was going on and what were we doing to mitigate that but we were trying to make sure we could answer your question first and foremost before we ever said how effective we were what's crossing because if you don't know that piece of it you can't answer all the other questions so some of the information coming out today and i'll shut up i promise is from the government is a little You're misleading not here to shut up we want to hear <laughs> so so some people and i'll try to stay out of the politics a little bit but some people use a little partial truce and then they mislead America. So Customs and Border Protection seizures, if you look specifically at the seizures of fentanyl, the vast majority of them take place at ports of entry. So some people argue or kind of allude to the fact that that means it's not crossing in between the ports of entry, it's only crossing at the ports of entry, hidden in vehicles, commodities, stuff like that. Um, but I argue that's, that's very, very misleading because that would mean that we knew what was going on everywhere else and most of it was seized at the ports of entry. But unfortunately, as soon as you leave San Diego, even actually in the mountains just to the east of San Diego, there's areas with pretty deep ravines and there's no border wall whatsoever out in those areas. Texas has very little technology, very little border infrastructure. So if an agent isn't out there, we don't know what's crossed. There's no one to actually identify, quote unquote, a gotaway, whether it be narcotics or people, you don't know until you catch it. Um, but this, today, because of the massive illegal immigration that we're seeing crossing the border, the amount of border that's going unpatrolled every single day has skyrocketed. There's significantly more border without Border Patrol agents patrolling it for 24 hours than, than the agents are patrolling it. Um, so we, we simply don't know. But back to how I started, we haven't impacted the cost on the street. Uh, it's not hard to get in any city across the United States, whether it be fentanyl, heroin, or something else. Um, it was getting harder and harder, uh, but it's not today. So I, I, I think it crosses, I, I know for a fact it crosses at and in between the ports of entry. The same cartels operate in both, and they just go the route of the least resistance. Right. Uh, you you, you mention cost. When the cost of the drug goes down, then, you know, uh, availability is probably larger. Um, driving the cost up, does that reduce supply? Is that a strategy? Reducing the, So reducing the supply runs the cost up. You run the cost up, it's harder to get the narcotics, less people are willing to take it. You compile that with education, mental health, and all the other issues that, you know, you start talking about once you're you're in more of the medical community, and we can make a serious, serious impact on there. But as long as the supply is completely unfettered and the price is super low, it's going to be very, very hard uh, for the end, for, for the second and third tier to uh, take effect, if you will. Right. But we can reduce the supply. We, we've come up with with ways to do it, and we were doing it. Um, unfortunately, that it just all got shut off because by the way, not again, not to get political, back to how I started this, either you have a secure border or you don't. You don't get to pick and choose what you ignore. You either have to catch- I was gonna ask you that. Like, yeah. why do we even need, why do we need even border protection? Why not just have it open? You're only seizing, I mean, you wouldn't give a number, but let's say whatever, 10%, 2%, whatever it is, even more, but it's only a percentage of it. So like, what's the point of the whole thing? Why not just have- Why, why do you lock your door? Why exactly? People could still break into your house. People could still break into your house anytime you want, right? Um, literally, they could. And then I would argue that most people, they don't think about this, but border security is exactly like your home. So I'll just use that analogy for a minute. You expect people to come through the front door, and then you make the rules of who and what can come into your house. 
just at a national level, Congress makes it for us. Border Patrol is supposed to make sure people come through the front door. But you look at the income that you have. Almost every American does this, whether they think about it or not. And then you decide how much money you're going to spend on your security to feel safe. Depending on where you live, you may have bars on your windows. You may have an elect, uh, like an electronic um, surveillance system. You may just have a ring doorbell. Who knows, right? Um, but you have you've put your resources to make sure that you feel safe, to make sure that things that you don't want to harm your family don't come into your house. But just like the border, your house, you don't know if somebody's bringing in a gun, a fentanyl, or they're going to kidnap somebody in your home until they're inside. So you just try to prevent them from actually getting inside. It's the same here. We've systematically over years put certain amount of resources against border security just to make sure we know who and what's coming into our home, uh, aligned with whatever Congress decides is appropriate. But I, I really try to get away from the drug discussion or the illegal immigration discussion or even the intellectual property rights or the food, the USDA issues, the produce, all because you don't get to make those decisions until you actually have border security. So if you stop and think about it, you could have all the rules you wanted in your home about who gets to come, who doesn't, what they can bring, what they can't. But if you can't control who comes into your home, that was a joke. It wasn't even worth the paper or the time you, you spent on it. Whether it be narcotics laws, whether it be uh, immigration laws, any of the law, anything that's an import export, whether it be people or goods, those laws are based on a fundamental concept that we could actually control who and what comes into our country. And I would still argue we were getting better and better at it, unfortunately walked away from it. But any discussion, like all the effort you put into the war, that you put into writing all those laws, it's a complete joke. It's like smoke and mirrors if you don't have any capability or willingness to actually enforce it in the first place. Um, I think you don't have a nation if you don't have borders, you don't have a home, you, you don't have a secure home if you don't have a way to lock the doors, windows, or maybe you're lucky enough to live in an area where you don't have to do that. I didn't lock my doors growing up, but my parents do now. Um, and that it's, it's, it gets overly complicated sometimes. It really is that simple. Yeah. That's a great analogy. Actually, I even used it as the intro for the show that we, we actually, we all have borders, whether it's at home or at work or, um, uh, we, we do that. And sadly, the reality of the world is there are bad people out there. There, it, it, uh, if they weren't in the, your home when there was no bad people, you had, you, you didn't have to lock your doors. But in any any place where there are some, um, you know, bad people, then then you do have that, and uh, a door, a border is uh, some type of protection. Yeah. But what about the border wall? You know, there's a whole big thing. You yeah. know, we need to build a wall, build a wall. Um, is that effective or not? And I'll tell you, as an emergency physician, yeah. yeah, all I see is people falling off the wall. And and uh, the people who fall off the wall and come into the emergency department, that has changed over the years. It used to be people from just South America and now people from Haiti or Ukraine or all over the world. It's really yeah. uh, a, a, a global people who have ankle fractures who come to my emergency department from falling off the 30-foot wall. So it, it, the wall is unbelievably effective. I will give you a couple of very practical examples, and then we'll, we'll come back and talk about strategies that didn't get carried out and, and the people falling off the wall and how you prevent 
uh, that or at least minimize it and why that is increasing. I know for a fact that's increased a lot in San Diego, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit that as well. But the wall is unbelievably, uh, it, it, it's, it shouldn't be political. There's not a security plan that anybody's ever come up with for any public event where you're trying to control large groups of people or their entry or anything else that didn't include walls. And by the way, walls go back to the beginning of time. You pick your religion. They exist every town, every community, village or whatever. But just think of like a county fair or think of a concert or a hockey game. You have limited places to enter. You set up walls to make sure you funnel people through those entries. It's no big deal. Well, the borders are so vast and wide open. It's unbelievably resource intensive to just have people, to have border patrol agents patrolling that border. Back to what you were talking about before about bad people. If you think back, we didn't really have, we had literally barbed wire on the border when I first started uh, in the 90s in a lot of places. And that barbed wire was put up by ranchers, not the US government. But society was different. We weren't dealing with the same threats we deal with now. Look at, you, look at San Diego, how many gated communities have popped up over the last 20, 30 years? because of these security issues, because of how people have kind of lost respect for each other. Well, that's a global thing. It's not just U.S. Same thing on our border. Less and less people respected the border. They were taking advantage of us. So we started experimenting. Like I said, San Diego is actually where this started. But let me explain to you what a benefit this is and why every American that cares about their tax dollars should support the border wall. San Diego sector alone, when we actually build out, not the prototypes that President Trump was out there for, but the actual early like landing mat fence and the mesh secondary fence, when we implemented that with some technology, we were able to dramatically improve the security of San Diego sector by over 90%. Literally, we went from completely out of control to where we were catching nine out of 10 people, and then we drove the numbers way, 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 way down. The Tijuana estuary from an, economic, from an environmental standpoint, rebounded. All of a sudden, all the, 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 the environment starts coming back. There's coyotes running around out there now. We're used to it was wasteland because thousands of people are running through it every single night. So we dramatically improved the environment, both economically and then actually environmentally. But just as important, if not more than that, well, not more, that's probably the most important, but that's hard to measure. We were able to pull 150 agents out of a 12-mile section of border from the beach to out just a little bit past uh, Otay Mesa. We were able to pull 150 agents out of there every 24 hours with that new heightened level of security, With it, meaning like, like all of a sudden it was safe again. They started building housing developments in Tijuana. What do you Tijuana. mean by pulling out those agents? It means that you, didn't, that you could be in a diff different job instead of just manning that border? Yeah. So if you looked at before that was implemented and after the daily staffing of personnel, it, there was 150 more agents in there before with significantly less level of control, meaning we were still losing people left and right at levels we couldn't even count. After we built the border wall system and then basically still had like a 90% effectiveness level, there was 150, it required 150 fewer agents every 24 hours. That was a $28 million return on investment for the border wall because agents are people, right? And you have to pay them for every minute they're working. The border wall is just, a, it's a wall. So you pay to have it installed in a minimal maintenance, but it's estimated to last about 30 years. And that first one was made out of scrap metal. It wasn't even really engineered. And it lasted almost 30 years, about 28. But that was a $28 million return on the investment. So did those agents get sent home? No, they went up the coast and started working with the other agencies in San Diego to take out the narcotic smuggling boats that are landing all the way up to Malibu on a daily basis, and sometimes as far north as uh, is, uh, San, uh, San Francisco, Monterey Bay. 
but we were also able to shift some of them out into the more remote mountain areas where we couldn't build a, a wall at that point in time. Um, but my point is you took them out of that San Ysidro area and you got to put them somewhere else. Every time we built out border wall across the Southwest border, this not exactly the same ratio, but it was we were able to cover significantly more border to make sure we know what was happening and no one entered our home without our permission with fewer and fewer agents. So yeah, the wall's expensive, but it's a direct return on the investment. And it's one of the least expensive tools because of how long it lasts uh, to make the Border Patrol more and more effective. There's nothing negative about it. People make all these allegations, right? But you don't, if you have a fence around your yard, it's not because you hate your neighbor. It's because you've delineated, this is my space, this is my yard. And your neighbor doesn't automatically just think that you're a racist or you hate them. Well, the border wall should be the same thing. It's just, it's common sense. It makes sense. And it's very, very effective. And it's very cost effective. Tell me about the, the ankle fractures. What, what could we do? Um, uh, you've been there. You've seen it. You've seen it being built. You said that there are ways. What, what, do you, what was your first question? I'm sorry. The, the ankle fractures. The people jumping. Oh, it seems yes. Like... So here's the deal. So, yeah. so the reason you're seeing an increase of that in San Diego is it's a ploy. This, this is horrible, but this is how bad the cartels are. So Border Patrol agents have to go to the hospital with those individuals that fall off the fence. So the cartel watches every section of border. They have different techniques, different places, but they watch every section of border. They know how many Border Patrol agents are out there. So they push across a certain number of illegal aliens every day or every hour, whatever it takes, or they'll create some type of a diversion. And by the way, don't get all complicated on me, listeners and stuff. School kids did the same tactic when they were trying to steal stuff from a local store. They'd have one kid distract the store owner and the other kids would rip off the candy. It's the same concept, but on a much bigger, bigger scale. And today in San Diego, the cartels are encouraging somebody to climb up that border wall. And in many cases, they push them off because when they push them off, all the agents from the area respond to provide medical care. And then agents actually have to go and transport that individual to the hospital and stay at the hospital with them. It wipes out the personnel. And then that makes it easier for the second wave, which is always the more serious threats, the people that pay extra to be in the second wave, or that's where the narcotics are always at in the second wave, because they think they're in the really are true. They have a better chance of getting away. Wow. That is so basically so evil. Men, because the yeah, no, it is evil. Up is pregnant women. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's not they just drop all kids here. off the fence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And think about it. If you're from San Diego, if you go out to Hakumba, actually, you don't even have to go that far. But if you got to Hakumba, there's no there's no wall whatsoever. So these people aren't doing this on their own. Look, but now let's jump to the next piece but, under but, the Trump administration. I, if they I'm were to do it, I'm going to ask that. Yeah. I I don't hear just, and maybe I'm not asking, and I'm going to start asking. But I don't hear from people that they were pushed off the wall. Ask them. I'm going to. And I'm not saying all of them were. That's a thirty I, 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 foot I mean, high just, wall in I've San Diego, like and some just can't. Of, some can't literally hold on like they can climb up because they'll use rope ladders or different types of ladders. But I, I've read. I've read some reports where the individuals were actually pushed off and there was growing intelligence in San Diego that a couple specific organizations uh, were doing that. But here's the catch. Don't ever forget that it's a business. So if they do that all the time and the word gets out, no one's going to that smuggler anymore. So it's always this push and pull shifting techniques. But the thing is, no one's climbing up that border wall without the permission of the cartels 
And if they really want to get them down, they've got harnesses and everything else. It's, it's, it's a disaster. However, we were literally, and this is going to sound cheesy, but we thought this through. So first and foremost, uh, we changed some of the policies within CBP that if a mass group or anybody tried to, to attack the fence, that, that we had some less lethal options that we could use. We increase patrols. Usually when you get close and you yell at somebody, they'll get down. The only time they really climb up like that is when they're going. there's a long period of time where it's not being patrolled. We never envisioned this mass migration that was invited currently, um, which is the problem. But anyway, so we were looking at actually working with South America and with, some, with Mexico and creating public service announcements, trying to figure out how to do it so it didn't look horrible for the U.S., like, like with propaganda, if you will. But just to teach people... It doesn't matter if it's a tree, it doesn't matter if it's a border wall, a telephone pole, a fall from over 14 feet can kill you. And we were, gonna, we were looking at putting uh, signage on the border wall, stuff like that. Um, unfortunately, we, things changed and I'm not in the chief anymore and all that kind of fell apart. Their focus is somewhere different. Um, but it's never a single focus, but please don't forget, and this is horrible, this is gonna sound like the callous cop in me a little bit, um, no one falls off that border wall unless they climb that border wall trying to commit a crime. I don't, want them, I don't want them to get hurt. I don't want them to climb up on that wall to begin with. However, there is a certain level of personal responsibility. Um, but, but that's where we have to have deterrence. Correct. Right? correct. If that's yeah. a thing to do, everybody come yeah. over and you get all these benefits, then I would do it too. <laughs> right. Correct. Uh, and I try to stay out of the politics, but that's yeah. what changed between the last administration and this administration. San Diego specific is another area where we did targeted prosecutions. Um, I'll, I'll switch the environment for you for a minute. The jet ski smugglers in San Diego are just as bad as the people that shoved people off the fence. Uh, very rarely do we actually catch somebody, the actual smuggler in the act of smuggling uh, on a jet ski in San Diego. Why? Because the minute that the boats or our guys interdict them or try to try to arrest them, they shove the illegal aliens off into the water out in the ocean. And it becomes a rescue then. We're not going to just leave them there. But that's how bad that they are. So we basically started prosecuting. And a lot of people don't like the way this sounds, but this is what works. We made an initiative to prosecute anybody and everybody for illegal entry that crossed in the maritime environment to try, try to take away the incentive uh, from those smugglers. And it was working uh, for quite a while. Unfortunately, that kind of went by the wayside because of a bunch of other priorities as well. It's just the massive amount of crossings today prevents that from happening. But but there are ways to basically convince customers, even if they're going to do something illegal, to at least go, go to another organization. San Diego, something you guys can look at later, but we came up with this whole plan called Cebusca, and all it was was huge billboards we put at the border with pictures of the known smugglers, and we just said we wanted more information about them. And that actually drove uh, clients, if you will, away from them uh, huh. because, because they knew we knew who they were. That's deterrence. Yeah, so we were doing all kinds of things like that, very, very creative. Um, but there's, you're not even allowed to talk about deterrence today. It's not part of the strategy. Yeah, and... Uh... I think that's uncompassionate uh, not to have deterrence. I 100% agree. What about uh, the other thing, kind of seeing boots on the ground, as I'll, I'll have people, again, who fall off the border, and I always ask, like, you know, where are you from? Or, um, and uh, we have immigrants, like I said, from different parts of the country. From, and I was really intrigued by people who are coming in from Haiti, thinking, why, why don't you come in through Florida? Like, why wait, wait, aren't you? Wait, wait, wait. you, got, why so don't I'm gonna, you? I'm going to cut you out there. 
right. pe people that were born from in Haiti, Haiti nationals, because very few of the Haitians crossing the border illegally are coming from Haiti. They've lived in other countries for years, but now that the border, and there's a ton of evidence with Border Patrol's actually reported on this many times. When you do interviews, they've been living in South America, they've been living in, in Mexico, all kinds of other countries for years, but they heard that now was the time to come to the U.S., so now they're coming to the U.S., but they're not coming directly from Haiti. That's all I wanted to kind of clarify. Yeah, but when I, when I asked this one guy, and this is an N of one, so it's not yeah. statistically uh, significant, but uh, this one patient told me that he couldn't get in through Florida, so he flew into Mexico and, and came that way. Yeah. So, to, so, so somehow to in, Florida has a more secure border than San Diego. So everybody does, by the way, forget that it's the United States Border Patrol, <laughs> not not just the land border. Yeah. Um, so we do have a robust presence in in Florida, uh, the Florida Keys, uh, Puerto Rico, even. Um, it's just a different smuggling techniques down there, and we do have smuggling uh, going on all the time down there. Uh, but the point is, it shouldn't be that way. Right. There should be consequences for illegally entering the United States, whether it be in San Diego, whether it be Florida, being wherever else. If you literally want people to come to a port of entry and then you want to have limits. And this is a whole nother discussion. People can have another time. That's not that's not my thing. But if you want to decide who and what enters your home, uh, then you have to have some deterrent to get people to actually comply with and follow follow those laws. Well, currently we don't, we don't have that. So they just shop around until they figure out the easiest way to get in or the cheapest. Um, and by the way, that's kind of how it goes. So the easier it is to get in, the less risk that the illegal alien takes to get in, the cost goes up. The more risk the illegal alien is, is willing to take, the cost goes down. So like crossing through a port of entry in an air-conditioned vehicle hidden in a compartment or something costs a lot more than if you're willing to trek through the desert, if that makes sense. So that may have been this, this individual you talked to, it may have been too expensive to, to you know, try to get a boat into Coach Florida or first or class, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, that, yes, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, what about marijuana? Uh, uh, it's legal um, or practically legal almost in, in every state. It's very readily available. Some of it is domestic, and we could talk about domestic drugs, and maybe that's not a Border Patrol uh, issue. Uh, but some of that is coming. Again, we got China and Mexico in with the um, illegal marijuana grows. Is it same methodology, same people? It's the same bigger people, I will tell you that, uh, primarily China and the Mexican cartels. Uh, my partner uh, in Border 911, Derek Maltz, is more the guy to talk about this because I do my experience, my expertise is on the actual border, what's crossing the traditional marijuana smuggling coming into the United States. But I can go to the next level a little bit. Um, it, it still fuels the same cartels, the same organizations, because now they've infiltrated basically the entire United States. We call them the Mexican cartels because that's where the leadership is, but it's a big global uh, actually, the term that we use uh, in the government now is transnational criminal organizations. Cartel is kind of like a slang word that's used more in the public. Um, but it is feeding into all that. And it's gotten worse because it's not the marijuana of of the past generations, if you will. The THC is so high now. You're, you're hearing problems on the news, people having different psychosis issues and everything else. Um, but it's very, it's, it's, it's almost worse. I'll just, I'll fast forward a little bit. Um, I moved to Oklahoma. So here in Oklahoma, Chinese coming in and setting up illegal marijuana grows 
under the auspice of the medical marijuana, having like part of it be the legal, but then this whole other operation, this clandestine operation being illegal is a huge problem. Um, and they're tying it, literally tying it back through Mexican drug cartels and directly back to China and illegal immigration of people crossing the border, coming up here to specifically staff uh, the, these illegal grows. And that's another reason I say it's all tied together. People can't can't just separate out their pet peeve. Like, well, I like people from, I don't know, Indonesia. So why do we care about that? You either have laws, you either secure your borders or you don't. Um, but now this some could argue this mass illegal immigration we've allowed to take place is now festering even worse in some of these illegal clandestine marijuana grows. And then the money laundering that goes through that now uh, back to China, a lot of it with the Mexican drug cartels, it all feeds off of each other. But it is a huge, huge problem. Yeah. And it's literally destroying the culture of America one one person at a time. Right. And we do need, I mean, the, the fentanyl is coming, uh, is an invasion um, from other lands. Um, but I think we also have our own responsibility as Americans as far as the domestic uh, drugs that are, are, are being sold and uh, harming our children, uh, which could be legal uh, marijuana and psychedelics and, and the other, the whole issue of normalization of, of drugs. Um, I want to talk about, we talked, you mentioned immigration and, uh, and you explained very well about having your home and do we have rules or not. But do you blame the people who are, are not criminals uh, who want to come to America for a better future. So I'm a little heart more harsh than many because you said not criminals. Um, but the minute that you step foot into the United States without going through a port of entry, you've committed a crime. Your very first act of coming here is to become a criminal. And honestly, a lot of times it's even before that. So the vast majorities, and I would say 99% now because of how the cartels control the entire Southwest border, especially if it's the Southwest border, they've conspired, they've gone out of their way, they've paid other people to help them commit a crime that is not victimless. Literally from identity theft, from everything we, you're seeing on TV along the Southwest border, they're selfish. And I don't mean selfish like, like the traditional way people feel like, oh, well, I'm really sorry for them or whatever. They're destroying our asylum process, and they're cutting in front of people in line. So I don't, I don't have the sympathy of the other people, and this is why. If how sympathetic would you be if you were standing in line at say Disneyland for an hour and a half, and then a family, even with little kids, cuts in front of you in line, they get yelled at by the person at the gate, and they let them in, and then it happens again and again and again and again. We refuse to talk about the impacts of this. Wanting it's, to come true, here is but not if, a crime, if, if but coming here illegally it. is a crime. And it actually is completely, it's hurting a lot of people. It's hurting people that really truly need asylum because they now are like villainized because they're lumped into this big group of fraudulent people that find loopholes versus people that really do need it. Um, they're hurting everybody. They're, they're hurting the ones that have been waiting in line for years. They're hurting people that need asylum. And I would argue, and I try to stay away from the right or left, there's one group that's refused to acknowledge the illegal aspect of this. And the unintended results now is there's part of the American society that wants to villainize all immigrants. Well, that's just as horrible. You shouldn't be doing that either. But unfortunately, because you weren't allowed to talk about what's legal and what's not legal, they all got looped in together. And 
this this doesn't help anybody and I'm not I'm not I just no they need to follow the law if your life is in danger you seriously seriously need asylum we have we have mechanisms for that come on and you can actually cross in between the ports of entry and I'll save you I'll get you where you need to go but that is not what's happening today it's all about economics and please by the way before we go please watch the videos not my videos or anyone else's I walked San Diego with a very very compassionate reporter. I won't give the name, but it was from a it was from ABC. But anyway, who was really skeptical, and then all of a sudden, she, and she'd been doing this for years. She's like, "Wait, this isn't what I expected. They all have super. They have nice shoes. Their clothes are nicer than mine. They have a, a smartphone. They have jewelry. They have cash. Like it's not what people think it is. If it really truly was running from an oppressive." you know, like legit pre oppressive government, I'm on board, bring it on. But that is not what's happening. And I have a hard time dealing oh, with Well, it. <laughs> if you have those videos, I'll put them in the show notes. So people they're all, no, they're all, I, I don't want oh. you to do mine. They are all over social media. There was one the other day, they were filming people, it was a reporter, filming people going through the Darien Gap, supposedly. And all their tennis shoes were like as white as could possibly be and brand new. They're going through a mucky, muddy jungle but yet their tennis shoes are like, you know, and their clothes are clean. Like there's just, if you actually, if people will stop and slow down and look at what's going on on the border, they're going to see things like that. If you look at what the pictures of San Diego, all the people standing along the border waiting to be taken in and processed. And then you literally start focusing in on, are these families? Do they look malnourished? Do they look like, anyway, just, just, I encourage your listeners, viewers to ask some more questions and dig in a little bit better. There's over 180 countries, just San Diego sector. I sat through a change of command ceremony there a while back, and the chief briefed out. They've arrested people from 180 different countries, over 200 and different 200 different languages. Yeah, my uh, my 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 uh, border patrol friend Jonathan Morales, who I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, on the front lines, he he uh, enjoys learning all sorts of new languages, right? Because he he talks and interacts with these people, yeah. and he's you know kind and compassionate. He's, he does his job, but while he's at it, he's 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 learning how to say you know little sentences in many different languages. I wonder if our immigration laws are just broken, though. That that uh, my brother-in-law and, and many other people have spent thousands of dollars trying to get people to come. Legally, to this, uh, he wanted to get his uh, Taiwanese uh, girlfriend co to come, and legally spent a lot of money, and it was broken. He's not able to do that. He's able to visit her in Thailand, but she yeah. can't come here and 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 come. And I'm thinking, like you know, she could have just come over the Mexican border like everyone else, and she'd be able to come in. You you know, obviously they don't want to do it illegally, <laughs> but. Yeah. Um, no, but I feel it, like, I feel your pain. I have very, very good friends that uh, the daughter married somebody from Venezuela. He's legal. They were tried to bring the mom over um, when they were having their first kid, and because of everything going on in Venezuela now, uh, they couldn't. Um, so, so you said, are they broken? Uh, they're not working the way we want them to work. But here's the thing: I like to remind everybody about. First off, I'm not slamming Congress here because Congress, whether we like it or not, is just a reflection of all of us. Right. It's just literally it is people from our own neighborhoods that we elect and send up there. Um, but they get to make the rules. That's how this is set up. That's how our entire country is set up. If we don't like those specific rules, they can change them at any point in time. But that is all a complete waste of time. And this is what's really happened. 
That is, it's not even worth the paper that it's written on if you're not going to try to control who and what comes into the country to support in support of those specific laws. It's very clear. It's illegal to enter this country without immigration documents and in between a port of entry uh, anytime, period. But when you let all those people go and then you do what's happening now, you allow a couple of million more people to jump in line to see the same very limited judges, the same limited CIS, uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services adjudicators. There's a limited capability based, again, on how much money do we want to spend on these things to process those cases. And when you continually let people cheat and cut in line and back up that line, it's never, it doesn't matter what you write on paper, it is never going to work. And then when you, and, and again, people don't like to hear this either, but then when you incentivize more illegal activity by saying, oh, yeah, you know what, we're just going to clean this all up by forgiving all of you millions and millions of people for your crimes, and we'll start again tomorrow, which is what we tried to do back in 1986, and it backfired horribly, and, and we've never been able to recover from that, and they're talking about doing it again today. You have any kind of a fix whatsoever to any type of a... a, a more smooth flowing, efficiently flowing immigration process has to rely on good border security. Because if you don't, and you talked about earlier, if there's not a consequence for saying, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to cheat. If there's no consequence to cheating, everybody's going to still cheat. That's just the human way. Um, I, I think it could be cleaned up and, and uh, operate a lot smoother. There's some loopholes that when I was in the uh, chief of the board, even before, we identified some things for Congress to fix. Uh, to make things run a little bit smoother. Um, what's How it's working today is clearly not working, but I would argue that it's because people are allowing abuse of the system. It's not because of the way the system was written or set up that there's something functionally wrong with it. Right. And uh, is there any other country in the world that has just open borders? <laughs> not, not a successful one, not a... Uh, not one that people want to go to. And that's the other thing. So what's the root cause, kind of not in, but what's the root cause of illegal immigration in the United States? Can I ask you a question? Am I allowed to ask you a question? Yeah, of course. What do you think the root cause is for illegal immigration? Because that's gotten so much attention in the last few years. Oh, the root cause. Like, why should do I, we allow say, it? Is yeah, because like we assigned, somebody assigned our vice president to go like study and figure out the root causes of illegal immigration. I believe the root cause of illegal immigration is whether we admit it or not, America is an awesome country. And we have our own problems and our own challenges, but everybody, not everybody, but a vast majority of the 8 billion people in the world want to come to the United States yes, if they could. absolutely. People want that's, to come here, right? That's, yeah, <laughs> that's the root it's cause. So here, here's the catch. If you let everybody that wants to come just come, you lose it. That's just a fact. Yeah. So you have to have some types of controls over that. Um, how, do you, how do you do the balance? The one way to basically make sure nobody wants to come is just destroy it, right? Like literally let people overrun it. Look at any any venue. And again, I overly simplify things, but look at like a, a concert where all of a sudden people have lost control or uh, I always forget the name of the big thing that goes out in the desert out by Palm Springs every year, the, the music festival. That I, place uh, is, yeah. yeah, it's a disaster afterwards because there's just so many people. You can't really control what's going on. And it literally, when they leave, it takes forever to clean it up. That's what the country looks like if you completely have open borders and you just let anybody come because human nature is to take advantage of what you can and move on. 
I'm not saying it's right. Matter of fact, it's flat out wrong, but that's still human nature. And if you ignore that human nature and just act like this utopian mindset thing could actually exist, you're in for a rude awakening. Yeah. So you are now involved in Border 911. Tell us what is that? Although it's a great name. <laughs> so Border 911 is a nonprofit that was actually uh, started by Tom Homan, who used to run. He was a Border Patrol agent in San Diego years and years ago out in Campo. Um, and then uh, he ran the Immigration and Customs Enforcement for quite a while. Um, and then uh, the rest of the team, and I'll probably miss somebody, but it's myself based on my Border Patrol experience. Uh, Mark Morgan, who was FBI for years, uh, he was a special agent in charge down in, in El Paso and learned a lot about the cartels. And then a very unique career, he jumped over to Border Patrol as a chief for a while and then ran Customs and Border Protection. And then Derek Maltz, he ran DEA's special operation as uh, their special operations group. Um, and then we have uh, Jason Jones, who was a detective uh, for in Texas DPS, uh, really focused on the cartels and stuff for years and now does so, some reporting. Uh, and then Sarah Carter, who does a bunch of reporting. But the whole purpose of it is to just educate America that border security is national security. There's so much hype around all this and so much information, misinformation. It's very topic specific. We are literally just, it's a, again, nonprofit. We're going around talking to any group that's are willing to listen to us, different functions, sharing based on our experience, why we adamantly believe that border security is national security and totally simplified. It comes down to what I told you a minute ago. If you literally cannot control who and what enters your home, you have no security and our national security is the same way. There's nothing xenophobic about it. We have conversations about that as well. This is literally the laws are made by Congress and they're about, it's about nationality, has nothing to do with some of the other allegations of skin tone or anything else. Um, and then we just try to have good open dialogue and provide information to people so they can make informed uh, decisions because honestly, it's, it's hard to find good solid information uh, and, and really get border security into a concept people can understand because it just seems too big for a lot of people to, too broad for a lot of people to be able to grasp. Interesting. And top policies to, to, to promote border security. I know top policy for fentanyls is uh, I support families against uh, fentanyl in declaring fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction in order to have a, a, a top of government um, action deterrence in, in getting fentanyl into our country. So... Uh that's another big, broad topic. So again, uh, Derek focuses a lot on the narcotic stuff. I focus on the border security piece of it. So the border security piece of it myself is one, policies and procedures and funding that actually mandates funding to border security goes to border security, meaning that the bottom line is it goes to situational awareness. So we know who and what is coming into the United States. And then consistent with 8 USC 1103, we try to deter it before it enters. We're not just in a reactive mode. So uh, policies actually to advocate and support the border wall, but specifically policies that end what we commonly call catch and release. Uh, basically what that means is you're processed and you're released into the United States. That is the fuel right now for this massive illegal immigration. That guarantees the cartels have an endless flow of people. And all we're advocating for is make sure that every single person gets their due process consistent with whatever laws Congress has established, 
but that they don't get the prize, they don't get released until the judge adjudicates their case. So they either have to be detained or they have to wait outside the country until their case is heard. And then that weeds out about 90% of the fraud. And once you read out the fraud, the flow slows down and we kind of get back to a normal of a, a level of border uh, chaos, if you will. There's always a little bit of chaos down there, but it would allow us to actually be able to control who and what enters our country. Um, so Indian catch and release is the number one thing that, that we're fighting for currently. Let me ask you, how many people are here uh, through the back door, not the front door, or are here illegally? Is it millions? So there, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah millions. millions. So, the, so the, I if think it's the last millions, estimate. is it possible even to deal, just let's say our border was perfectly hermetically sealed right now. What do you do with those million people? Tell them to leave. And that sounds callous, but they came illegally. But here's the here's the catch. Here's the, here's the problem. So yes, we can. I believe you just enforce the laws that are on the books. And if a judge orders somebody deported, you actually do it. The problem is we get all wrapped around the axle, and everybody's got a story. But the the illegal aliens themselves, if you will, the migrants that came in illegally, they're hearing mixed messages right now. So they're not hearing leave. They're hearing from one no, faction. No, they're hearing stay because then and you'll get housing and you'll get this. And, you know, again, it's yeah. you follow – people follow the flow. I, I think, you know, I, I I don't blame them if that's what they hear. Um, so earlier I was a little bit more callous, but in this case I would probably be confused as well because it's not just – it's not just non-governmental organizations. It's not just their neighbor. That's different, right? If you if you snuck into a country and then some neighbor hid you or a church group or whatever, you could justify to yourself. Um, you could justify that to yourself. I think most people probably could for whatever their rational reason, whether it's legitimately justified or not. But when a government official or an entire state like the state of California stands up and says, yeah, we don't agree with any of that. We're going to give you sanctuary. We're going to hide you from the federal government. Now you're like, whoa, wait a minute. These are official government people that are all that are telling me it's okay when these other official government people are telling me no. Um, so that's the other thing long term is you've got to get rid of these sanctuary state policies. I am a big believer in states' rights and everything else, but there are certain things under the Constitution that are reserved for the federal government. And if the states don't go along with that, it completely destroys the entire process. And immigration and narcotics coming across the border is one of them, those federal laws. Um, so we need to get, I, I really truly believe if those people, a lot of them, not all, I'm not naive, if they heard a unified message that said, yeah, if you crossed in illegally, we're not going to help you anymore. You need to leave, apply through the regular process. You know, you, you would never let that family that cut in line or jumped the fence into Disneyland stay in Disneyland if they got caught by security, you would expect them to be thrown out because they didn't pay for that ticket like you did. You might feel a little sorry for the kid crying, but you're going to look at the parents and go, mm, no way. I'm not, I waited in line. I paid. National security, again, I seem a little callous sometimes, but it really should be the same thing. But we need a unified voice because uh, right now we do not have that unified voice. Yeah. And if we have a million people and pick a percentage, whatever you want, like we said, there are bad people in this world. Um, there's a percentage, and the bigger the number, the bigger the number of people who are here with uh, bad intentions for our country and our citizens. 
Correct. So for any of your viewers, if you go on to cbp.gov, because again, I want people to actually ask more questions and dig into things. Don't just take my word or anybody else's word for it. Go to cbp.gov and there's a tab that says newsroom. And then there's another sub tab that says stats and summaries. There's a bunch of interactive spreadsheets and stuff on there. You can, you can look at how many criminals were arrested by Customs and Border Protection, how many people were actually arrested totally um, in, in the situations. You can even look at the locations. That's kind of important, but I want, I want you to look at those numbers, but then I want you to think about something else. Those were the people that were encountered. And right now, a lot of those literally jumped the border wall or crossed the border illegally and then just stood there and waited for Border Patrol to pick them up. The biggest threat to our country, Border Patrol has documented over 1.8 million known gotaways just under this, this current administration. And I'm not, I, there's always been some gotaways, but that number is like off the charts. We've never seen anything like that before. Why is that so important? By definition, the 1.8 million were not asylum seekers. They did everything they could to avoid interacting with law enforcement. They could have stood around, but no, they either paid more to be in the second wave or ran or whatever, but they did everything they could to get away from law enforcement. That 1.8 million plus, that I don't have any idea how many crossed through the parts of the border that we have no surveillance and no agents are currently patrolling. But what I do know is statistically, there are significantly higher numbers of criminals and bad people in the second wave because they're trying to get away from law enforcement than in the first wave. We're, we're 1.8 million. That's just a phenomenal, phenomenal number. That, that, that is an unnecessary risk to this country that we could have prevented. Yeah, and now we just have to live with it. Well, uh, Chief Rodney Scott, thank you so much for joining us and High Truths for your service through multiple administrations, multiple different policies and politics in protecting our border, protecting our country, and, and even in your retirement, continuing to do so. So really thank you. Well, thank you for having me on today and enjoy San Diego. I kind of miss it. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where you learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org to learn more. High Truths producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more. High Truths. Thank you.